invite you at this time to open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we're working through this section with regard to the man who was born blind and now being healed by Jesus. And we covered that last week. In last week's message, we covered uh, verse 1 through 12. And I'm going to read that again so that we can sort of get started and in recalling how Jesus went about healing this man. You'll recall that he was uh, about to be stoned in the temple. They, he had equated him, so he said before Abraham, you have seen uh, before Abraham was, I am your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So he went out of the temple, and his disciples managed to scurry away as well, secretly. And they're together, and they come across a man who is born blind. And here's what happens. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So verse 8 says, the, no, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Father, we thank you, Lord, for that introductory uh, passage that helps us see at least what's happened. From here, things get rather challenging. They get, cha they get challenging in the way that uh, the opposers come along and interrogate this man. But we thank you, Lord, for the grace that was given to him, that he stood firm on the truth according to what he knew, and that he didn't waver even in front of these questioning, suspicious Pharisees. So help us now as we move through the rest of this text down through verse 34. We need your help, O Lord, so that we can glean all that you want us to from this passage and from this story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm going to handle this a little bit differently. I'm, it doesn't really lend itself. It's more of a story, a narrative about what happens. 
doesn't lend itself to a more homiletical structure where we got point number one, point number two, point number three. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take verse 13 down through verse 34 and move right through that, sort of explaining as we go, and then we'll finish with some things that we've gleaned from what we've just read. So let's get started. This, this, <clears throat> Jesus sees this blind man and miraculously heals him. It's a clear act of deity, and he's challenged. He's challenged immediately, at least that the blind man is. He's got his uh, sight restored now. And so the dark powers of darkness are immediately rising to challenge, which it typically does against the truth of, of God and his Christ. So we've seen that through the other discourses, through chapter 6, 7, 8, and now in 9, it's not changed. The truth comes along, and as was prophesied by Simeon when the baby was born, that this will be for the rise and falling of many, that this is going to be a polemical gospel. This is when the truth comes, it's going to serve its purpose to put people in one of only two categories, either belief or disbelief. They have this rank disbelief, the Pharisees do anyway, even though the young man now made, uh, given his sight, uh, is speaking according to what he knew. So the man is physically blind from birth. We know that because the people that have talked to him are neighbors and there are others that have known him. He probably has a particular place that he sits. So he's physically blind from birth, but the Pharisees are spiritually blind in their stony hearts. So they're really who Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 13, verse 13, first part, when he says, seeing they do not see. So obviously they can see these things for themselves physically, but they do not see spiritually. They will not see. It's willful, isn't it? So what's the hook? What, what hook do they try to catch this man up with and, and sort of spoil the whole miraculous healing? The Sabbath. They use the Sabbath. No works on the Sabbath. And that's what healing was. It was considered, according to the traditions of men, it was a work. And here he was doing the work of healing. And that's, that's forbidden. So, but Jesus said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Man is not created to worship the Sabbath. Man is, is not uh, created to um, venerate that in some kind of a, a way. It, it really, the Sabbath rest is meant for man. And so they have this upside down. The Sabbath is, of course, to be kept holy. It's the fourth commandment uh, in, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments that we will keep the Sabbath holy, and we, we do that. We're still called to set this day apart from the other six days. We keep that. As a matter of fact, the way Christians use the Sabbath um, is a, a pretty good indication of the health of their Christian faith. It kind of shows you where they are in terms of how they make these and a series of other choices. So Sabbath was meant for man's good, for his mind, his body, his soul, all of those things. So Clearly, healing this blind man doesn't violate the Sabbath. And so we're going to, I have a couple places that we'll look at in the Gospels where Jesus is make, has to make this point over and over to them. So this is an act of mercy. It's, it's an act of mercy, and that's important to remember as 
when we get to another place in another gospel, he said, you, you know, that he, he's telling them they would do well to understand that, he, that God prefers mercy over sacrifice. So they're, they're not getting it. They're not getting it here, and they won't be getting it in those other places as we take a look at them. So no amount of evidence, however persuasive, would change their minds. They're the minds of legalists. That's the way they are. They've settled on what they believe. They're not going to be persuaded. So they're not hearing anymore. They're, they're listening, but they're not hearing. So at this point, these legalistic religionists, these Pharisees, close their minds and they stop listening. So there's no amount of persuasion. There isn't anything that's going to change that. So there we see the second half of Matthew 7, or 13, 13, where Jesus says, hearing, they what? Do not hear. They're listening to you, but they're not listening. They've made up their mind, so don't confuse me with the reality. Don't confuse me with the facts. That's them. They've made up their minds, their hearts, hearts are hardened toward that perspective, and they don't want that interfered with anymore. It interferes with their whole lifestyle. So they're not going to be, they're not, they've got to find some hook, and this is it. It's the Sabbath. Ah, we got gotcha. you. But that's the tradition of men. They're not violating the Decalogue, the Decalogue's intention in terms of the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy because God prefers mercy over sacrifice, and he'll make that point here in a few minutes. So seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, the time for questions are, are, are over. We're not going to hear that anymore. And it was Walt Whitman who said, I came across this quotation a few weeks back, and I thought, this is so good. Very simple. Be curious, mm -hmm. not judgmental. Mm -hmm. Be curious, not judgmental. Love seeks to know, right? Mm -hmm. Love seeks to know. So why wouldn't they ask him questions? They're looking for a way. He's already been judged. The condemnation is already there. So it's just a matter of finding a way of condemning him. They're not listening anymore. They're not seeing anymore. And that's what's going on here. But you have to admire the blind man's moxie. I mean, he stands on the truth because it's, it's the truth. And if you attack me, you're just attacking the truth. I'm just a man. So this is what we're up against here. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. This they referred to, of course, back to verse 8 where it says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. So that's, that's who the they are. So the they, the people, the neighbors, the people that were just happened to be there when Jesus came by this blind man, they take him to the Pharisees. We can speculate as to why they're doing that. They probably want something confirmed, wouldn't you say? I mean, the man had been blind his whole life. That was their understanding. And now all of a sudden, somebody spits in the ground. They make it into mud and they put it on his eyes, tell him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And now he can see. And by goodness, he can. He can see. We've known this guy his whole life. Let's go to the Pharisees. Ah. Well, okay. But you'll see what happens. So... This healing of a blind man, by the way, is unprecedented. They hadn't seen anything like this before. So that helps us understand why they might bring him to the Pharisees. Help us understand from our biblical perspective, their scriptures at the time, because we've never heard of this before. Why? It's nowhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament has a man who's blind been miraculously healed. You can look for it. Fact check me, please. 
I was wrong already in the first hour, so give it a shot. You never know. <laughs> Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. There's a reason they make the point of pointing that out, and we'll see that as we go along. Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. We talked about last week, he didn't really have to use mud, did he? They bought, there was a, there was a traditional medical uh, thinking that back then that uh, there was healing uh, principles or purpose or elements in saliva. They, there's records of that historically. So, but that's not what caused his uh, sight to be regained. His sight was regained because Jesus has the power of deity. He healed him. And, but why did he do that then? Um, here's my speculation. Take your own. I think he wanted to make clear that everybody saw that he was committing very clearly what they considered what? A work. Yeah, breaking the Sabbath. Because when we look at these other Gospels that deal with him healing on the Sabbath, you're going to see, and he does it a lot. He, it's clear that he deliberately heals on the Sabbath just to get them rankled, to make a point to them. You guys are lost in the traditions of men. Moses didn't write this. You did. So this was verboten. This was forbidden. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he, meaning Jesus, put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. I love how succinct he is. Why? Here's my speculation on that. Because he knows the Pharisees. You're going to see how his parents are frightened of them. They don't want to be put out of the synagogue, right? So he's not. I know what you're looking for. You want me to, to give you some elaborate explanation so you can find some other place to put the hook. That's how they do. That's how this works. That's how the legalistic religionists do. They're looking for a place to hook. Well, you said this, and this was off. So he sticks to the facts, just like Joe Friday from Dragnet. Just, just the facts, just the facts. And that's what he does, but he stands there firmly by himself, except with the other people that brought him, and he gives them the plain facts. It says the Pharisees asked, uh, uh, again asked him. The again is because the neighbors had already asked him. And he gave them a much more elaborate uh, response there in verse 11. If you recall, here's his response to them. This is before they take him to the Pharisees. Verse 11, he's explaining to them. He, and look at how much more information he includes here than he does in our text. He answered, the man called Jesus. He doesn't use his name there. Not to the Pharisees, does he? He uses the pronoun he. Could it be that he suspects that that would cause a problem? The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, "Go." and all, none of this part was, was in what he told the Pharisees, go to, the, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Hmm. Not there. Not there. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Nothing there, to, no handle to grab a hold of. If they'd have said Jesus, if they'd have said Siloam, who knows what. Ah, he just, that's it. 
It gets more succinct than that. Watch what happens as we go along in the text. It's just amazing, this guy. This is the guy I want to meet. Everybody says, who do you want to meet when you get to heaven? This is the guy I want to meet. <laughs> I do. I want to meet him. I'm like, dude, this is, <laughs> this is remarkable. This is... He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. This is very straightforward, unvarnished truth. That's what he gives them. Nothing more, nothing less. So in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, here we go, we've got you now, son. Here's the hook. This man is not from God. You can see the neighbors and the others gathered there. He wasn't shaken, but they are, right? For he does not keep the Sabbath. There it is. He can't be from God. He violated the Sabbath. But others said, <laughs> don't you love it? There's always that other perspective. It's that, it's that, um, that dichotomy, that, that division that the truth will do. It puts you into one camp. Or the, so there's uh, the, the people, and I think it's the neighbors and, and, and friends that are standing there. So they say, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? You're not supposed to be asking questions like that. So there was division among them. That's what the word, that's what the, the truth of God's word does. It, it divides. It, it's a winnowing fork. It pulls people apart. Notice how immediately they attempt to discredit Jesus. Here's what we have to do to pull this off. We've got to besmirch this man. He is not from God. Why? We can tell you why. He violated the Sabbath and it stops there. No more talking. But they talk anyway. Well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Hmm. This is clearly an act of deity. They have nothing else like it in the Old Testament. There's other resuscitations of life by prophets and things like that. But no blind man is ever healed by someone coming along and healing him. This is clearly a work of God. It's, it's a deliberate diversion a diversionary tactic. Take them off what the reality is. Take them off the facts by disparaging the person. That's a, a, a classic. Opposers find it necessary to vilify a person so that his character is besmirched in order to do what they're going to do, and they want to kill him. So they have to tear apart his character. They have to. They have to. They're not going to talk to them like Walt Whitman suggested. They're not curious. They're not curious anymore. They don't want to talk about it anymore. The judgment has been made. That's it. He's not from God because he did this on the Sabbath. Even though it's not a law for Moses, we made it up. We think it's pretty good. It suits us. So, because already, and, and, it, and it ends with them wanting to destroy him. They, they want to destroy they, they, it, they either want him, uh, they just want him gone, and eventually they kill him, as you know. So let me show you a couple of other uh, passages in other Gospels, and I'm going to just move through these quickly because I want you to hear them where he's dealing with a healing on the Sabbath. So listen to this, starting with Matthew 12. I'll read verses 1 and 2 and then 7 and 8. This is, and you'll remember the story. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of the grain to eat. Hmm, guess what day it was? 
But when the Pharisees saw it, aha, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And then, of course, he goes on in those intervening verses talking about, what, you don't remember David? He went into the temple when he was hungry and ate the bread of presence. Wow, that should be some huge violation. But this is David, so you can't say that. And guess what? All the priests are exempt because they do all their work on the Sabbath. Hello? You're right. So he points that out, and then he gets to verse 7. And if you had known what this means, and he cites their scriptures, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you had not condemned the guiltless. They're not guilty, but you condemn them anyway. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is my Sabbath. I'm telling you what it means. Wow. That's pretty authoritative. Mark 3, there's another example you'll be familiar with. 3, verse 1 to 6. And again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. Remember that? And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. <laughs> So they're watching for this. Remember chapter 5 of John? The, the man who was lame by the pool of Bethesda? Same thing. They're there watching. That's what they do. They watch. Oh, there he is. Here we go. We're going to add this up and destroy him. That's what we'll do. And they do it. They do it. They're successful. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? This is Jesus saying this to them, to his accusers. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? You're only giving us two categories. It's not like the law of excluded middle or some other fallacious argument. <laughs> to save or to kill. There's your other choices. And then he goes on. But they were silent, see? And he looked around at them with anger. This is... One of the only places where you see Jesus angry. He is angry, and he should be. Grieved at the hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. What? For healing a man's hand? This is how hard-hearted they were. It doesn't have anything to do with healing a hand. It doesn't have anything to do with the Sabbath. It has everything to do with who he is. So they have to destroy his reputation. They have to destroy his character so that they can get the people on their side. And so they're secretive until they think they've got others on their side. And then they destroy him. Luke 13, 10 to 17 now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. See, only Jesus can do that, right? Stand up. You're fine. And he laid his hands on her, verse 13, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. They should be happy to... Right? That should make him happy. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, it says, over what? Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the people, this is the ruler of the synagogue, says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. 
Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, from whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So they're not winning over the crowd, are they? The crowd are doing the right thing. They're doing what the woman did. They're glorifying God for the work that God is accomplishing in them. But they, their effort, their sole effort is to distract and pull them off the good work that God is doing. They can't do it, so they have to get the Romans to do it. Because the people weren't buying it. The sincere ones weren't. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? You know, what they're hoping for here is, we made it clear, didn't we, son, that this is a sinner, this, is not, this man isn't from God because he did that work on the Sabbath. They think maybe they got him, or maybe they're testing to see if whether or not, hey, we got you, because we need to build a consensus. We need to build a crowd. We need that. They were afraid to speak the truth about John the Baptist. Remember when Jesus tested them? Hey, that baptism, was it John the Baptist or was it from the Lord? And they don't say anything because they don't want to upset the people. This is, this is their hypocrisy. It's rank, rank hypocrisy. What does he say? He's a prophet. See, he's still speaking the truth, the, the amount of truth that he knows. We wouldn't say that he's necessarily saved yet. I'm looking forward to that. That's the end of the chapter. It is powerful what Jesus does there to the Pharisees and to this man. It's a, a blessed, wonderful occasion of seeing this guy recognize who his Savior is. And now he's got sight in both ways. It's awesome. But from now, he must at least be a prophet. Even though the Pharisees had poisoned his mind, he stuck with the truth. How about that? So they planted that in his mind first, and then they asked the question, so what do you say? That's what they do. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think? Listen to this. What do you think? I guess you're right. No, he doesn't do that. He's, he's at least a prophet. He gets that much. So the man is again speaking the plain, unvarnished truth according to the knowledge he has. Amazing. See, even Nicodemus picked up on who he was in that sense, didn't he? John 3, verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And the Samaritan woman came to the same conclusion that the blind man did. In chapter 4, the very next chapter, verse 19, the Samaritan woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. At the very least, you are a prophet. She finds out that that is her Christ eventually as well, doesn't she? Brings her testimony to the town. The townspeople come out. It's in a massive, glorious, wonderful um, evangelical moment when the people tell her it's no longer for your testimony that we see who he is, that he is the Christ but we see that for ourselves. Just wonderful story. And then in John chapter 6, verse 14, 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So we see that. Now I'm going to read verse 18 through 22 at this point because we're going to meet the parents. <laughs> this is good. The Jews did not believe, verse 18, that he had been blind and had received his sight. See, they refuse. They, they, they're standing face to face with him and they still don't believe it. They won't believe it. It's a willful act. They don't believe that he was blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this, there's three questions here, is this your son who you said is born blind? How does he now see? Now they answer the first two in the affirmative, but they waffle on the third. Why? They're afraid. This is called fear of man. That's right. Uh, we can't tell you really how that happened. So his parents answered, we know that this is our son, yes, and that he was born blind. Well, they ought to. They're his parents. Verse 21, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. I love that the Lord has providentially put verse 22 in so that we know that they're lying. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Shameful. Shameful because this is their own son that they're tossing to the wolves. Fear of man is a powerful thing, isn't it? It, it, it? But it's something to be repented of because we should have a healthy fear of, of God that, that doesn't withhold truth. And you see this young man not hold, withholding truth at all. He's speaking the truth. He's speaking the truth according to what he knows. He's not embellishing it. Nothing like that. So from the text, we can see then that they're feared, they're be, feared being put out of the synagogue. So this was a thing. This was a thing, and it's, it's very uh, stigmatizing to be put out of the synagogue in their culture. It's hard for us to think of that as being all that serious because some Christians are, are, are so superficial that they'd rather like to have their Sundays off for a while, right? This was a big deal. You, you, you had to be in the in the. Uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And they could be put out from anywhere from 30 days. It just depends on the issue. They could add days to that. They could even add a curse to it if they wanted to, just depending on the severity of the infraction. So they're afraid. They're afraid because they'd be stigmatized in their culture. They're afraid of the Jews because they're the religious authority and everybody looked up to them. Fear is driving them. We do not know is a lie. Verse 23, from his own parents. Their parents, therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. I like what Trench said in his notes on the miracles on this. Listen to what he said with regard to the parents. There is something selfish and almost cowardly 
in their manner of extricating themselves from a danger in which they are content to leave their son. Okay. Wow. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now the give glory to God part is a direct quotation. You need to understand how they're using this. It's from Joshua 7.19. In Joshua 7.19, you remember the story of Achan? Achan is, remember the Lord told his people as they're conquering the not to take any of the booty, any of the anything at all. Leave it all behind. Don't touch any of it. Achan and his family, they take it and they stash it under their tent. And it, now there's, there's quite a censure, right? Open up the ground and swallow them up, the entire family. And some people, well, that seems kind of cruel, his entire family. Why not just him? The whole family was complicit. The whole family was in on it, on the, on the stealing. God would consider that stealing, taking something I told you does not belong to you for my own reasons. So Joshua 7.19 says, And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So this is an adjuration to repent of something that they believe is being held back. Give glory to God right now. So it's a recognition that you stand in the holy, majestic presence of the living, almighty God. Now give me the truth. Starts to get ratcheted up, doesn't it? That's what they're saying to him now. We don't like what you're saying. Give glory to God and we'll let you slide. You need to say this our way. You need to go along with us. We're the authorities here. We have the records here. He's violated things here. Your presence is from an all-knowing God, just like with Achan. You need to revere his majesty and honor him by telling the truth. Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. That's an honest statement, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know. How would I know that? I don't... I was blind. I can't see anything. I don't know who this, you know, I don't know anything about it. I don't know. One thing I do know. He didn't have to add this, did he? But he does. One thing I do know. See how it gets more succinct? Though I was blind, now I see. Live with it. It's like he's saying, deal with it. Because I can't, re I, I, I can't, I can't restrain my rejoicing. He's been blind his whole life. This is the first moments of his being able to see. You think I'm going to disparage the one that healed me? You think I'm going to let you get that hook in? I can't argue theologically with you. You are the Pharisees. So I'm going to stick with the facts. Stick with the truth and the truth will set you free. That's right. Don't shrink back because you're afraid of what that person might think of you or what they might do to you or they won't be my friend anymore or my sister or my brother or my mom or my dad or my neighbor or my co-worker. Don't do it. Don't do it. 
I was blind and now I can see. Another fearless, unabashedly straightforward presenting of the plain facts. Verse 26, and they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So finally, the Pharisees are coming to terms with the fact that he was blind and now he can see. Did you get that? Because he did, they didn't believe it before. Well, it's, we're slowly coming to the truth. Maybe you guys will get saved at some point, but probably not. Because you're legalistic religionists. That's what you are. You have no grace. You have no mercy. That's who you are. Verse 27, he answered them, don't you love, this is one of my favorite lines, I have told you already. He's talking to the highest court in the land. He's talking to the Pharisees. I've told you already, you would not listen. It's willful, right? He didn't say you cannot listen because you're deaf. Otherwise, what's the point of having a conversation? You wouldn't listen. That's willful. Would, could is not willful. You could listen. You would listen is willful. You, you get that now because the wording is so utterly important. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear him again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Do you see why I want to talk to this guy when I get to heaven? I mean, this is just remarkable. Hey, maybe you guys want to become his disciples too. Let's all follow Jesus. He's, he's treading on some, some pharisaical hallowed grounds here. But he's just like his master. His master stirred things up. He agitated intentionally because it brings out the true condition of a person's heart. Oh, they're wrinkled. Oh. Oh. So he's becoming somewhat defined. I think we can agree on that. Outside of Christ, this is one of the best comebacks to a spiritually dead and blind Pharisee I've ever read. Calvin said this, he means that they were so possessed with spiteful and hostile passion that although persuaded a hundred times, they would never yield, end quote. They're not asking any questions, a la Walt Whitman. Why? Because they don't want to know what you have to say. That's why. The judgment's been made. The gavel's been dropped. The condemnation stands. Why? Because there's no mercy. There's no grace. There's no reason then for asking any questions. Why should I? We ask the questions here, young man. So add courage to this man's plain-spoken truth-telling. He appears to have zero fear of man, unlike his parents. Verse 28, and they reviled him. See, he stirred them up. He showed the true condition of their heart. They're stirred up now. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. How arrogant, right? My good, oh, excuse me. You're disciples of of Moses. He's been dead for quite a while, hasn't he? Jesus is alive. Yeah, Jesus is alive. This word is. 
So they won't even call him by name. You're his disciple. They don't even say who it is. They know who it is. You're his disciple. Sets them apart from Jesus. They'd gotten under, this man has gotten under their skin, as Jesus often did, which reveals the bitterness of their hearts. Trench said, so impossible is it to convince those who are resolved to remain unconvinced. You might as well stop at that point, right? Yeah, end quote. Verse 29 through 31, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we, don't, we do not know where he comes from. Is that a truth? That's not true. They could have at least said, well, their thinking could have at least been Nazareth. We knew that he grew up. He's that carpenter's son. They knew this, but they actually knew that he was in the line of David. They knew he was originally born in Bethlehem. So I love this. Another wonderful statement in verse 30. So the man answered them. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? You don't even know where he comes from and you're the religious intelligentsia? You know everything, don't you? This is an amazing thing. You don't even know where he comes from. Maybe he picked up on the fact that they wouldn't even say his name, that he just said, we're not his disciples. Maybe they, they, he picked up on the sort of the, the, the acidic way that they said that. And he's like, you don't even know where he comes from? And yet he opened my eyes. He, he healed a man who's been blind his whole life. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, he says. This is the man. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. We know that God does not listen to sinners. I'm going to let Augustine speak into that because we know God listens to sinners, yeah? Listen to what he says. It's, it's wonderful. If God hears not sinners, we, what hope have we? If God hears not sinners, why do we pray, etc.? Assuredly, God does hear sinners. But he who spoke, this is the man born blind, but he who spoke these words had not yet washed the face of the heart in Siloam. The sacrament had gone before his eyes, but in the heart had not yet been affected the blessing of grace, end quote. Isn't that wonderful? That's why I wanted you, him to say it instead of me. <laughs> but if anyone is a worshiper of God, he says, and does his will, God listens to him. So the continual teaching of Scripture that God only hears those who call on him in truth and sincerity of heart. Why? Because he looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. John 10, our next chapter, Lord willing, when we get to it, verse 25 and then 37 to 38, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. 
But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Well, this is starting to sound like where we left off in all those other chapters, in chapters 6, 7, 8. Where was he now? He's not there. He backs away. Why? He's got another one speaking the truth to the Pharisees. How about that? And then he sees him later on. That's how the chapter finishes up. Where was he? Was he watching? I, I, I rather think that he was. Because otherwise he's fielding questions just like in the way that I read from John 10. This is the usual way. He has to explain things to them and so on. He has to make the case from the truth. But he's not there on this one. The blind man does it himself. That's amazing. Verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of the man born blind. Like I said, this is precedent setting. They've never seen this before. It's not in the Old Testament, not this particular healing a blind man who was blind his whole life. So verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They're, I, I would venture to say that he, they're getting pretty upset now. They're, they're already, this young man needs to go. He needs to go. But more plain, spoken, unabashed declaration of truth. These are all true. This is true. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So why are we here, he could say. But he sticks with the things that he knows, but he's not, he doesn't have one ounce of fear of speaking it. Wow. And these are the truths that confront the Pharisees just like Jesus, his master. So I imagine Jesus over in the wings, smiling. That's my boy. <laughs> That's my boy. He's going to speak the truth, and there's going to be those that are just furious. I needed a break anyway. <laughs> Not like Jesus needs a break, right? Verse 34, our final verse. They answered him, and now they're upset. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? See, they still hold to that traditional belief that if you're blind, it's because either your sins or the sins of your parents. We went over that last time. And they cast him out. They threw him out. John 16, 2, before I finish up our time with some lessons for us from all this, from this wonderful story. John 16, 2, Jesus said, they will put you out of this. He's talking to us. They will put you out of the synagogues. They're going to get you out of your church. They'll do it. They'll do it. They will wear you out doing it, but they'll do it. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you. So it's not just you that's going to die, Jesus. No, some of us are. We're going to literally be killed. We call them what? Martyrs. And that doesn't stop them from speaking the truth, not even on threat of death. The hour is coming 
when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They think they're so righteous. They're so right, aren't they? Even though the fruit of it is division and destruction. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All right. Here's five lessons. I'll have a short reading and we're done. So if I go through these quick for time's sake, uh, just know that we have these available for you uh, in outline form. It's in the outline. Whatever's up on the screen we have available either on Sermon Audio, you'll have the PDF, or you can just text me or anybody else and uh, I'll get this outline to you because this is so very important. So the first lesson that we see from all of this is these are things that we need to be, right? This is our beatitudes, if you will. Be unapologetically plain spoken about the truth. Just tell the truth. Speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4.15. Love doesn't withhold things that people need to hear just because it's hard for them to hear it. Did you hear me? No, love speaks it because they need to hear it. That's what it does. So be unapologetically plain spoken about the truth. Second, be courageous. Be fearless. Be courageous. Repent of any fear of man or approval seeking that causes you to withhold truth from those who are spiritually blind and or obstinate. They're being stubborn. They're being hard-hearted, stiff-necked. You still tell them the truth. You still give them the truth, even while they're insulting you. Give them the truth. And make sure it's coming from a place of love in your heart. But don't withhold it. Be courageous. Jesus was for our sake. John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. I'll just read it for you. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, listen to this, Many even of the authorities believed in him, Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And then there's Galatians 10 with regard to, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter uh, 1 and verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man? So we had the one, the one passage on the, from John 12 for the fear of man. This is for the approval seeker. I don't want to disrupt the relationship. I don't want to jeopardize the relationship. So I'm withholding the truth. Paul writes, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't be a servant of Christ and the servant of man. In pursuit of your relationship with Christ and a preserver of your relationship with people. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Third, be sure, be sure, listen to this now. The legalistic religionists claim to know a person's heart. They make these declarations because they have, they've, they've, I can, in his case, they said, you violated the Sabbath. 
right? So he's condemned. There's no talking about it, asking about it, nothing. They don't want to hear, so they're condemned. They think they know a person's heart. You must examine what? The fruit. And that goes to um, Matthew 7, 16 and 17. Matthew 7, 16 and 17 says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad, bad fruit. If you have a question about the veracity of what somebody's saying or doing, look at the fruit of it. What is the fruit? Is it uniting people or dividing people? Is it edifying to someone or is it destroying them? It's that simple, but it's utterly important. And Christians don't often think about that. So be sure, I'm going to be sure by what I've seen, by what I've seen and observed. He put mud on my eyes. I washed them in the pool of Siloam, and now I can see. That's some pretty good fruit, isn't it? So what are you worried about the Sabbath for, you and your traditions? Why are you worried about that? God wants mercy rather than your sacrifices for the Sabbath. Look at the fruit. Absolutely, critically important. Four, be prepared. If they vilify Jesus and the blind man for speaking the truth, they'll do it to you. They'll do it to you. Be assured. So, be prepared. Galatians 4.16. That's where Paul writes, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They're, they're, they're following up behind him in their, in their efforts to destroy the churches he's planting. And how are they doing that? Think about it. How are they doing it? They're destroying his character. They're dis disparaging his character. They're derogating him. Because if they can destroy what Paul came and taught, they've destroyed the church plant. It's over. If he, they can just plant that poison in their heads, they're going to question everything Paul ever said. It doesn't matter how long Paul has said it. It doesn't matter how truthful it was. It doesn't matter how transformational it was. It doesn't matter. Do you see? It doesn't matter. Is that what you're doing, Paul writes? Do you hate me now? Am I, am I now your enemy like you made an enemy of Jesus? You're listening to the wrong people. Five, and finally... Be aware. When legalistic religionists vilify you, their hypocrisy is showing. Their hypocrisy is showing. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged. The Pharisees were judging everything. They thought that they had, because of their robes and phylacteries and their knowledge of the Scripture, that they had every right to judge everything. There was no question. Like Whitman, no asking questions. We're not curious. We're not curious. We're the ones who are supposed to know. And we know. And here's, here's, here's what he did wrong. 
and he's condemned. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your eye? <laughs> you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I'll leave you with Luke 6, 22 to 23. And this is the fact of the matter. Always remember this. Blessed are you when people hate you. Why would he say that? Because people hated him. And if he hated them and you embrace the truth, and this isn't just some sort of churchianity for you, it's real, your faith, you will be called upon and have it tested. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Rejoice and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. I pray that you would give careful consideration to what the Scripture has in these lessons for us. Simple short story entertaining at, at the very least, but there's some very, very critical, important lessons to be learned there. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us that if we're patient, if we would simply only wait, you reveal the truth to us. Thank you for that, Lord. I thank you. You comfort us with the truth even though things are happening that we are not in favor of. Things are hard. Things are hurtful. They're painful. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would be plain-spoken truth speakers, that we would never shrink back, have the fear of man, never seek the approval of man. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this church family and these, this faithful remnant that is here rebuilding your church because of their love for you, their love for Christ and his church. In his name I pray, amen.